We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Howdy Nets fans, welcome to another season review podcast edition of the Brooklyn Buzz. With me as always, nothing but Nets, always the experts. Nick Fay, how are we, mates? I'm doing great, Jack. How are you doing today? Very well. Had a nice session of basketball in London. It's summertime in the Northern Hemisphere, so I'm making the most of it. Yeah, Jack's balling out. Um, today, Nicholas, we had some players who definitely balled out and had some career years. Damari Carroll and Spencer Dinwiddie. Who do you want to kick off with? Kick off with? Let's go with Dinwiddie. I like it. Most improved player in that uh, conversation. Yeah, top three, probably, you know, I'll probably finish third behind Capella and Oladipo. But, you know, both these guys, you know, Carroll and Dinwiddie both had great seasons. But Dinwiddie, you know, similar to Rondé, jumped up in his points per game, jumped up in his assists. Field goal percentage and three-point percentage dropped, but his role and his responsibility picked up a lot. His consistency was a little bit of an issue, but like we mentioned on a couple shows, some of that had to do with D'Angelo coming back, you know, his role changing a lot. But his on-off, you know, a plus 3.9 rating. Yeah, he's been he's when we lost D D'Lo and Jeremy Lin and he sort of ran the team, that's when almost the Nets looked their best. I mean, they didn't probably have as much pace because D'Lo sort of likes to sort of slow down slow it down a little bit and is a bit more precise with, with how he sort of surveys the court a little bit and obviously in, in his assists, he's second in assist to turnover ratio in the year. I think only behind uh, Darren Collison. Um so a, a huge feat for him for a guy who was a thirty eighth pick and was a you know uh, a a scrub uh, by by definition for by a lot of people, but you know, obviously last year there were some glimpses, and this year, yeah, he was just awesome. And I think he was seventh in total assists as well. So, and, and for a guy who you know whose role changed uh, a, a lot of times with the the input of like you know Levert and and D'Lo, you know that sort of glut that we've talked about in, in the guard department, you know Spencer Dimity was um, one of our shining lights on the season. 
Yeah, you can't complain about him. He went from being a G leaguer to having a definitely having a role in the NBA. Win shares 5.7, 54th in the NBA, the highest net. And I think that's something impressive just considering on this team. And the expectations for him going to the season was just, you know, essentially to be a bench player. There wasn't, a you know, an idea about how many minutes he would get with all the guards and stuff. So shout out to him. A really impressive season. You know, he put his basketball IQ on display. You mentioned the assist to turnover ratio. Does a great job protecting the ball. Good length at point guard. You know, he has the ability to attack a little bit. He does a good job of taking advantage of bigs in that one-on-one situation. And you just like his ability to run the offense, get people involved. Yeah, I liked him getting inside. And I liked how, he, yeah, he ran the team. When he was out there as the lone point guard, the team looked like it flowed really well. Um, and, and that's saying something, obviously, getting other guys involved, as you mentioned. What was your favorite part of Dinwiddie's season? You know, he had so many... Uh, dagger threes, you know, he, obviously he, he went to it a little bit too much at times, like we mentioned on the buzz earlier. But some of the times that he, he hit them, oh boy, they made me scream. The big three against Cleveland early in the season, I thought that was huge. When every, you know, D'Angelo was out and everybody thought we'd lose, he played big. Also that game winner against Detroit I love because he obviously was fouled and he didn't get the call and he still hit the shot. Yeah, when we know how Spencer Dinwiddie was probably the most fouled guard who didn't get the call in the NBA, uh, and the last two-minute report reflects that. So for him, the composure and the intelligence that he has, you know, we talked about on previous buzzes as well, the fact that, you know, he, he, he outlined his frustrations to the media, but not in a really sort of, you know, uh, rabbly sort of way, like a guy like maybe a Russell Westbrook would or guys that don't have that sort of, uh, composure, so to speak. You know, Spencer Dillon was very measured in how he, you know, outlined his frustrations and like, you know, look, we're not getting the calls where it, it's frustrating, but uh, we've sort of got to play through it and it's, you know, we don't have that reputation yet, but Spencer Dillon certainly uh, lifted his reputation and then some, you know, the, the Cavs wanted him, we were going to trade him. Uh, there was a, a rumor for that first round pick of the Cavaliers, their own one, not our old one, um, which a, a lot of guys were saying, you know, do we take that? Um, I think he might be in a lot of sort of trade scenarios possibly as well. Um, his stock has increased exponentially more than anyone probably other than Victor Oladipo in this league. Yeah, they're definitely a huge jump. Like we said, he was a, you know, I don't want to say a borderline NBA player because us Nets fans watching him last year, you know, we felt like there was a role for him in the NBA. But I think the general NBA realized like, all right, this guy can ball a little bit. You know, there is still some potential for growth. Obviously, the contract is great this year, you know, under $2 million. And it's going to be a lot of trade scenarios for him because obviously the Nets have D'Angelo Russell, Jeremy Lin still under contract. We talked about Karis LeVert probably being best as a lead guard. You know, his role with the Nets is definitely unsure at this time. But there, I think there's still a future with the Nets as a possibility. I don't think it's a guarantee he'll get traded. There is some areas in his game where I think he really needs to improve. You mentioned, uh, you know, consistency. Very inconsistent. He had one month, January, for example, averaged 14.9 points per game. And then in the month of, uh, the month of March, he averaged 9.8 points per game. So I think yeah. the consistency, three-point shot, you know, I think there was months where he was averaging 35% plus, then months where he averaged under 30% from three. So I think just finding the consistency. Do you think, you know, you mentioned the ref thing. Do you think that affected his play at all when he wasn't getting the calls? Because, I mean, it's human nature to kind of get a little bit deflated from that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these guys are humans. We we assess them like they're these personalities, these robots that we expect to do so many things on the court. But these are human beings. And when you're taking emotions into account, sport is a, a more emo emotional pastime uh, profession than, than any other. So there was probably an element of that. But I think there was obviously 
like we mentioned earlier, uh, probably a bigger effect in the sense of his role changing so much. The consistency he had as that lead sort of guy, I felt like you mentioned with the 14.9 points, the consistency he had as the number one guy, he knew what he was. He he was the sort of number one focal point of our offense. And, you know, at points in the defense, he was quite a, a decent defensive guard. But again, like we mentioned with our other guards, a really big area he can improve on. I think that's probably the bigger point. But like, if you go and say percentages, I'd probably say, uh, 70% of it was role change and 30% might have been uh, just the mentality of what was happening to him on the court with the officiating. What do you think if you're giving a percentage to it? I think I would probably throw in another percentage. I think fatigue. Yep. yep. You know, because going from playing, you know, he might have, his minutes only jumped, I think, six uh, six minutes a game. But, you know, in the season, having the ball a lot more in his hands, running the offense, having a lot more responsibilities, and that's giving the ball at the end of the shot clock. And like we mentioned, the role changing, his minutes were definitely higher when D'Angelo was out. So I think just overall, you know, putting those extra minutes on your back, going from playing last year where he probably didn't he didn't play the full season, he was bouncing in and out of the G League, back with the Nets, and he was more of a backup role. This year he had to start at points and really put a lot of the load on his back. So I think that fatigue, I'd probably go um, – 50 for the role change because I do think there is some question like intensity wise you know sometimes you watch Dinwiddie and like it looks like all right this dude's about the ball out tonight like he's attacking he doesn't care who's in front of him he's gonna get to the lane I remember one game against Philly I want to say this was you know I (laughs) I don't know the exact months either January February or March one of the in that time period he was very aggressive got to the lane you know I think he shot like 10 free throws that game and, you know, you just don't always see that from him. Other games, he was just passing the ball. He didn't feel like attacking. So I would say 50% uh, – actually, give me – yeah, 50% role change and then 25%, you know, fatigue and then 25% just overall, you know, intensity kind of lacked at times, some of it doing with the refs. That's fair. And in terms of one thing in, in the improvements that Spencer needs to make, um, obviously that three-point percentage, you know, the ability – he has the ability to space the floor. Like, he's got that reputation now, similar to, say, like, Kevin Love shot one for eight the other night, but he automatically spaces the floor because he has that reputation. And Spencer Dilney has proven that. But that number on the an entire season needs to get to at least 35% for him to be a more consistent threat and consistency, you know, across all facets of his game. But I think just off-ball sort of, uh, I feel like that's one thing, you know, the coaches, if he is going to be spending uh, an extended amount of time with the team, and I'm sure that Coach Kenny will be asking for this out of him, as will the assistants and Sean Marks. He's going to need to work on his off-ball skills, you know, whether it's cutting. Uh, we talked about with other players as well, their ability to cut uh, in the sort of motion offense. You know, just be a threat there because he can shoot the three-point ball. And if he can catch and shoot, you know, it's obviously a much more effective shot than off the dribble. Um, Spencer might say otherwise, obviously, in terms of, of what he's been able to do. But I'm sure if we looked at the, to the numbers, I think it's the same with D'Lo. I feel like, you know, off-ball, you know, working, whether he's playing with D'Lo or whether the minutes are staggered and he's playing with Karis LeVert or whether he's playing with Jeremy Ling because he's, um, the, the recent news coming out is that he's starting to really ramp up his activity uh, on the court. So it, we got four, like, decent guards and that have, you know, decent potential and decent on-court production. It's, it's going to be, all of them are going to have to work on that off-ball sort of thing, probably other than D'Lo because obviously he's the guy that we're looking uh, forward with. Yeah, I think D'Lo is probably the one. And he even, you know, he's been decent off ball, but like you said, all the guys can kind of improve. And I think uh, Dinwiddie, like you said, the three-point shot is very important, especially with all the guards. You know, I think we'd like all the point guards to shoot around 35, over 35%. That's a perfect world, obviously. And you mentioned the combination of Dinwiddie and D'Lo. Last year, that was his worst combo combination. Him and D'Lo per 100 possessions were minus 10.9. 
So obviously yeah. there wasn't a great rhythm between those two. And obviously, you know, both being young guards, not used to this role necessarily trying to work together. It felt like they were just kind of taking turns, kind of reminded you of like a Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant thing in OKC back in the day where one guy was like, all right, I'll run the offense. You just kind of stand in the corner this time. I'll run the offense. You just stand in the corner this time. Yeah, and I think that comes with just knowledge of each other's games. Obviously, with the the amount of injuries that occurred throughout the season, you, know, you can't get that chemistry. Um, and obviously, during the season, um, the Nets obviously being a young team and an improving team, they need those off days to sort of look to the film and, and you know look to the coaches and you know get some good training sessions in. And and that can barely happen uh, in an eighty two game season when you're flying you know coast to coast. Um, and I feel like you know that's why the Nets you know generally started really well and then sort of tape it off and then they have that big sort of finish because there's you know that consistency in the lineups that consistency across you know the the health in general um, and i feel like you know the the off season is going to be hugely important in terms of you know just guys developing their bodies and their health and so to speak but also just for their team cohesion and we've seen obviously you know the guys have been working out together spencer did when he uh, mentions that he loves to go to la uh, a lot of the guys are in la right now as well so i feel like spencer's obviously made such a huge improvement with um kim and durant shooting coach in the offseason with that three-pointer um, i felt you know the the number will definitely go up um, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what he sort of brings into next season, you know, uh, in terms of the, the tangibles on court and off court. If he stays with the Nets next season, what do you think his role will be like? I like him as a sixth man, Nick. Uh, I really like him as being like a, I feel like, you know, he's in the most improved player conversation right now. But if we have Spencer Dimwini for 70 to 80 games next season, uh, I feel like he's a legitimate threat to be a sixth man of the year contender. Um, what do you think? Defense would pick up a lot. I feel like his defense's intensity on that side of the ball could pick up a lot. Like we mentioned, good length. Like a lot of the Nets, I think he could hit the gym a little bit more. Uh, yeah, like that sixth, seventh man role, it's going to be interesting because I think you, you know, it's a guarantee that D'Angelo starts. If he doesn't start, that'd be a very interesting move. You know, I think the front office would kind of push for him to start. I would see, you know, uh, I don't know how much they would change the lineup. I mean, Karis LeVert could possibly start or Jeremy Lin. Where do you think, uh, like, who do you, would you, if let's say Jeremy Lin doesn't start, who would you rather have come off the bench first, Lin or Dinwiddie? Uh, it's really hard. Both of those guys have, you know, Jeremy Lin at his best is probably a better player than Spencer Dinwiddie, do you reckon? Yeah, I would say he's proven that he can be more consistent, especially off the bench. I mean, I just think back to that Charlotte season with Kemba and him being that, you know, six-man type guy, bringing that energy yeah. and intensity. We haven't seen Dinwiddie in that role, but I think Dinwiddie obviously has a higher potential to be better than, Jeremy Lin, especially recovering from injury, it's going to be about how much work can do when he put in this offseason. Is his three-point shot going to improve? Is he going to accept being in a smaller role? Because part of me has a feeling that, you know, Dinwiddie was great last year and didn't complain about it all. But just the vibes I get from him, I think he wants to see if he can be an NBA starter in this league. Absolutely. And he's proven that, you know, he's legitimately proven that. And I feel like that mentality is the right mentality to have, but it's also at the same time, he has the basketball IQ and the general intelligence in general to be able to go, look, if this was the team, if this is what the team wants of me, then so be it. And I think also that the relationship, a lot of these guys have with the coaches in the front office. If Spencer didn't was to go to Sean Marks and go, look, I, I'm, I've loved my time here. You guys have been absolutely awesome to me. And I, I think the world of you, but I'd, I'd 
not demand a trade, but I, I, if you can find a trade for me that works out well for both parties, then so be it. Um, and I could see that happening, especially if Jeremy Lin stays healthy. But that generally hasn't been the case over the past few years. You know, we're going to have guard injuries. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, come, you know, that trade deadline in February, whether Spencer Dinwiddie is still going to be in a Brooklyn Nets uniform. If I was to pose to you, gun to your head now, obviously, <laughs> this obviously is a hypothetical, guys. Uh, but if, if I was to go, you know, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, is he in a Nets uniform come that trade deadline or is he uh, on a different team? I love Dinwiddie but I think he's going to be on another team. I wouldn't be surprised if he's trading the offseason. I think for the Nets, his value is at the highest point it's going to be because next year he's going to be in a smaller role. He's on a great contract. You know, if the Nets do keep him, then they're just going to lose him for nothing because they're not going to be able to probably afford him and afford some of the other guys because obviously D'Angelo is going to be coming up soon. Karras is going to be coming up soon. You know, looking Rondé, you know, Jared Allen down the line, and obviously they want some cat flexibility. And having, you know, so much money locked up in one position never really works out well. Ask the Portland Trailblazers about that. So I think, you know, moving Dinwiddie, this, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's moved on draft night. I think yeah. there's a real possibility. We talked about the Denver scenario. I think teams do not have cap. And when you have a guy like Dinwiddie that you know can improve your team or just give you a solid bench player, like, I mean, just throwing off random teams in the postseason that could have used a player like Dinwiddie, you look at a team like OKC. You know, you have a guy like him off the bench. He's giving you a nice push. I mean, I could see him in San Antonio as just a solid point guard as well. Like, there's really a lot of roles for him in this league, even Cleveland. Like, I mean, he could fit into a lot of teams. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. They wanted him. So, And and he's proven the fact that, like, you know, the teams, Detroit, you know, Detroit would probably want him back. Chicago (laughs) would probably want him back. You know, he could fit on 29 other teams um, in a a heartbeat. But another guy, Nicholas, that we've, uh, has obviously been thrown into sort of trade discussions as well. Um, Obviously with his expiring contract, it's certainly uh, a nice sort of asset for other teams too. And his production this season was career defining. Uh, Damari Kell, what were your initial thoughts on, on his season as a whole? Oh, I thought he was supposed to be a salary dump, Jack. No, <laughs> You know, like, you know, that, I mean, he couldn't have played better. You know, I mean, I expected him to bounce back because of the relationship with Kenny, but I never expected him to play as well as he did. You know, some yeah. of that was him having to step up with Lynn being out and some of the guys being banged up. But like you said, career year in points per game, career year in rebounds, career year in free throw attempts, assist. You know, his on-off was uh, 4.2 plus. Win shares 4.1, 108th in the league. You know, I think there's not really much to complain about him. And his overall leadership and the vibe he brought to this team, I think it really helped. And I think if we don't have Damari Carroll and you replace him with a player with similar, you know, on-court play, but not the same leadership off-court play, I think the Nets probably lose five more, you know, five more games. Yeah, I think easily. Uh, you know, the mentorship that he showed to, to uh, D'Angelo Russell at various points throughout the season, the off-court stuff to me is just as important. And that's why, you know, the Nets don't have a heap of vet guys that are, you know, can teach on the court. You know, we have guys that are obviously aging, you know, Timothy Mozgov, uh, Dante Cunningham. Dante Cunningham was great for us. Um, but Damari Carroll, to be able to set the example on the court, as well, uh, it, it's huge for for younger guys that we have in terms of our building roster with with so many of them. Um, you know, career year, like you mentioned, in, in all in so many facets of the game, and you know, he he credited that to the coaching stuff and the development stuff, you know, um, it was just, they were the key reason why he was able to, you know, he didn't really miss that many games, you know, 73 games. That's the um, equal highest that he's, he's played in his career since he was in Atlanta. Obviously, you know, uh, Coach Kenny was back there with him as well. So, you know, I feel like coaching is underrated in this league in, in so many facets of, 
uh, in so many ways and facets. But for Damari Carroll, he knows how important it was for him. Uh, and it, sh- it truly showed throughout those 73 games. Yeah, and you mentioned the coaching and development team. Also, he shouted out the performance team multiple times, saying that he had that one knee injury where it looked like he might have been seriously hurt. And he said if he hadn't worked with the Nets performance team, he probably would have been out a couple of weeks. So shout out to them for doing a great job. And I think he just set the example how to play the right way. You know, all-around player. He knows how Kenny wanted to be played on the court. Basketball IQ was definitely there. He showed guys, like, <clears throat> he told guys, you know, where they need to be, what they need to do to be successful in this league. And like you said, D'Angelo, I thought that relationship was huge. And he's probably going to, even when he leaves, his impact is still going to be felt in Brooklyn for the culture he's helped set. You know, he was a big piece in helping the Nets change that vibe, especially this se- last season. Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I feel like a lot of teams are going to be clamoring for him uh, in the sense of, you know, they're looking at his, you know, salary dump, so to speak, and he's just production in general. So many guys are looking for those wings. You know, you go to New Orleans, you could even go to Houston. There are so many teams that are wanting a productive wing that can defend and shoot three-point shot. And Damari Carroll does that perfectly. You know, you could rival that with uh, Trevor Ariza. Damari Carroll, though, is only improving, whereas, you know, you look at Trevor Ariza right now, he's certainly on the downswing in terms of his age. Now, I'm not saying that Damari Carroll doesn't have age on his legs as well. He's 31 years old uh, and going into his age 32 season. But, you know, the fact that he was able to have a career year in his 31st year, you know, it's it's LeBron light, LeBron light, so to speak. So it just shows that, you know, you, you can never stop improving. And I feel like, you know, there's so many players on this roster that we mentioned in our player season reviews uh, that have done that and, and age despite. I think age 31 bouncing back, especially for the injuries. Everybody thought he was done in Toronto. People still think he's done because they haven't watched the Nets last season. But like you said, you know, all around complimentary player. You know, I think the only thing you really could hate on him for is the 41% from the field. Some of that's just having to force shots because the Nets couldn't, you know, get good possessions every offensive time down the floor. Uh, he also did a great job of getting to the free throw line a couple times. He had that one move where he'd just kind of drive and then put his arms in and kind of just draw the foul. And it seemed like he always got free throws at a time when the Nets really needed it. Uh, but, Jack, who's more likely to be traded for you, Damari Carroll or Spencer Dinwiddie? That's a really tough one, Nick. Now, if you're looking at the roster composition as a whole, you'd say Spencer Dimmy with the amount of guards that we have. And obviously, Damari, uh, it's, he's not the value both of these guys have right now is at its peak. Uh, Damari can still have a great year next year. But at the same time, you, know, you look at the contract as well. You know, want to get that off, you know, get another young asset possibly. Uh, I feel like Damari is such an important part of this locker room that I feel like Dinwiddie is more likely to be traded. Um, now, Dinwiddie obviously has been a huge part of uh, the leadership that he showed on the court, especially in that you know, key stretch in the middle of the season when we were uh, losing injury, having injuries at left, right, and center. So I would probably lean towards Dinwiddie being traded. Um, but at the same time, it certainly could be both. Uh, what do you think? I agree. I think Dinwiddie's more likely to be traded, like you mentioned. Overall roster construction, I think you could also see Carol Moore at the four this year. You know, I know he doesn't necessarily enjoy that, but while the guards, you know, here to play, and then obviously Joe Harris and Alan Kraft needs to get minutes, I think it'd be more likely for Carroll to not be traded. And I think the Nets like to keep his leadership around because I would assume that there was a deal out there to grab another first-round pick for Damari at the trade deadline last year, and they just didn't take it because it wasn't high enough. And I think they like having him around. And Dinwiddie, his contract is just so movable. You know, so many teams that are in that are cap strapped can actually make a move for Dinwiddie. Where Carroll's still, I think, making around 14 mil a year, even though it is expiring. You know, it's still you got to move contracts and make it work. Where I think Dinwiddie's just, it's almost an ideal trade piece. 
Absolutely, yeah. You, uh, there's so many things that you have to take into account when making a trade. Now, obviously, with Demarco with 14 million, you have to find you know other guys that are worth that money uh, and sort of make up the difference in that sense. And obviously, the Nets have a little bit of salary cap space, uh, but not a huge amount to sort of, sort of afford a max guy in the sense of maybe a borderline max guy. So I feel like yes, Demarco Carroll, they're both probably going to be traded. I'll be surprised uh, if they're not. Um, but at the same time, Demari and Spencer both have huge impacts on this team and I can see them not being traded at the same time. You know, there's, it's going to be a fascinating off season for many teams and including our Brooklyn Nets. But in terms of what is the lowest, you were mentioning that pick before Nick, that was probably offered to, to both Spencer and Damari Cal in sort of trade scenarios that we've talked about, you know, in other player season reviews and in, in other pods, what is the lowest that you would sort of take? What's the ideal sort of scenario that you're taking back? Is it uh, a young developing guy like a Malik Beasley from Denver? Is it a pick? Is it a combination of both? Um, is it maybe another sort of leader who's on a sort of lower contract? Guys have been mentioning Ryan Anderson as well in terms of his fit. And, yuck. you know, the, it's yuck uh, in terms of obviously that contract as well. And, you know, I can't see the Nets making that unless the Houston gives us a, a billion first round picks. Um, so there's just so many different scenarios that could sort of happen with the Nets. What's for you? You're short marks and, you know, you're, you're making the calls. What do you want to do with these two? I mean, if we're talking Ryan Anderson, I'm not taking him without two first-round picks. There's not yeah. even young, young players on Houston's roster, really, that you can throw in a trade. So, Ryan Anderson, that's that. Um, it's tough. You know, like you mentioned, Dinwiddie possibly asking to be traded. I wouldn't be 100% surprised by that. I think, you know, you want something probably over 25, but, you know, you can't really get you maybe to that 20 to 25 range, or you have to throw in another asset yourself. Maybe we talked about throwing in the 29 pick and Dinwiddie to try to move up or something like that, throwing in some second-round picks, maybe throwing in a future uh, future pick. Uh, it's very tough. Carroll, on the other hand, I don't know if there's going to – it's going to be harder to trade him, I think, now than it was last year because of the people being cap-strapped and him being expiring. I think there's a scenario where he stays with the Nets this season. He ends up in the offseason. They re-sign him on a really favorable deal, and they kind of work him into more of a bench role, and they kind of keep him long-term. They give him some decent money, but they pay him a, they overpay him a touch just because they want that leadership around and that culture. So I yeah. think both those guys, it would have to be – you're not going to trade him for nothing unless than what he's asked, asking to be traded. We know Carroll doesn't really want to be traded. He's happy in Brooklyn. He's happy with Kenny. He loves the performance team. So I think the Carroll trade, someone's going to have to – offer you a good deal for Carroll. You know, someone's going to have to be like, all right, I want, you know, I'm going to send you this and Sean Marks isn't going to be able to turn it down. If that's, you know, a decent first round pick, is that a young player? You know, it's very tough. Uh, could it be in like some type of sign and trade? I'm not really sure. Uh, Dinwiddie, on the other hand, I think they're more so willing to take a trade that might be a little bit undervalued just because they know they're not going to be able to keep him. And there is some question marks about, will they have playing time for all these guards, especially for you know, with Jeremy Lin. Like, I think Jeremy Lin is a big X factor, and they're going to look at his health a lot going to the draft, going to the offseason, where he's at. Can he really contribute at a high level next year? Yeah, there's so many questions for this Nets team, and, and some of them are good questions. Some of them are certainly bad questions in terms of, you know, some of these guys might get hurt. Some of these guys might get traded, you know, fan favorites, so to speak. But, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, the Damari Carroll, he was touted, you know, for, for Detroit and, and New Orleans. Those two suitors are probably still out there. But in terms of like what's the uh, the equivalent trade going to be? I don't think New Orleans will want him anymore. Obviously, after getting the Colin Miritich, but you look at what the sort of Bulls did in that trade. They took on 
uh, Omar Ashik's contract, um, which I think is only one or two more years. And then they got a first rounder out of it to, to get rid of Nikola Mirotic, who was leaving, you know, nonetheless. So there's certainly, you know, comparable scenarios that I'm sure would happen for Damari Carroll uh, and or Spencer Dinwiddie. You know, it's going to be interesting to see the future of these two guys and, you know, how Sean Marks works his magic as we've uh, so often marveled at. But guys, thank you for tuning in always. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Make sure you guys, I forgot to mention, subscribing on iTunes, following on Blog Talk Radio, uh, hitting up at OTG Basketball. You know, the finals coverage is going absolutely wild there right now. And obviously there's a nice little giveaway as well that Nick's been tweeting out as well as on the OTG page. So follow it all. Uh, And guys, thanks again. Nicholas, as always, it's been a pleasure. Same here, Jack. Pleasure to always record with you. And also check out OTG Basketball. Jack's been dropping some great pieces. Karis LeVert season review, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson season review. If you want to, you know, read the read the article while you listen to the pod, that's good too. Absolutely. Cheers, Matt. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.